We had the fantastic opportunity to speak to Heather Chavez. She wrote an amazing book called No Bad Deed. Heather is a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley's English Literature Program. She's worked as a newspaper reporter, editor, and contributor to mystery and television blogs. Currently, she's employed in public affairs for a major healthcare organization where she writes human interest stories. She lives with her family in Santa Rosa, California, and she's at work on her second novel. We enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for taking this time. I know that um, things are probably very busy right now just with the release and everything. So we do appreciate you coming and uh, making time for our show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, interesting, uh, you know, your book is very, very interesting because it really draws you in and uh, it's really different than the way that you expect a thriller actually to uh, to open. So I guess just beginning, I'm wondering about, you know, certain choices uh, as far as your book is concerned. So I actually was looking up different things and I found that Cassie actually comes from the Greek meaning shining upon men or she who fills men with love. And I was just wondering, to what extent do you believe that this description fits your protagonist? Well, um, when I was looking up names, uh, I don't remember exactly what the definition was that I came across. Yeah. Um, it, it does sound very similar to that. Mm -hmm. And I really did um, connect with that side of her, the lightness in her, the even though that's not her main character, <laughs> um, her main characteristic is, is more you know, this hidden side of her that's that's a little bit darker. Yes. Um, yeah, and so, it, you know, I, I do think she has that side of her too, mm -hmm. which I, I do think she ultimately embraces um, as she, uh, you know, as she does search for answers. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned something that's very interesting, sort of like the dark side and exploring, you know, the dark side of characters. And I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent do you believe that is actually uh, something that is fascinating for people to uh, to explore? And I'm just kind of extrapolating the fascination that we have on, you know, serial killers and, and things of that nature. So I'm just wondering, especially based on the thriller genre, that there is a, a huge sense or a huge appreciation for sort of like the darker tendencies of human nature. I used to be a journalist and yes. saw a lot of that. Okay. Um, and, you know, a lot of the dark side of human nature. Mm -hmm. And it always did fascinate me to think of people doing these horrific things yes. people they profess to care about. Mm -hmm. So um, I did have that exposure to, to the darker side of human nature. Mm -hmm. I think what appeals to me about it is, in this book specifically, is the thought of, you know, no one no person is just one thing, um, yes. whatever that is. There's, mm -hmm. there's not, no person is, well, there's some that come close to being you know, <laughs> pure good um, or pure evil. Yeah. But it, for the most part, people, people it's, it aren't really just one thing. They're, they're sometimes defined by their actions, but that's not necessarily the only thing they are. Mm -hmm. And so that's what intrigued me about this book, um, it actually had, when I started it, it, what really appealed to me was the duality of human nature and the fact yes. that there's darkness and lightness in all of mm -hmm. us. And that, that's interesting because uh, I'm also wondering too about the uh, the character uh, Carver Sweet. So, you know, we meet him in the opening chapter and obviously he's doing something very gruesome but throughout the book you sort of discover you know why he was doing those particular things so for you in terms of developing certain characters is it how important is empathizing with your characters actually have in terms of building that narrative and building a story 
I have to, even even the worst of my characters, the ones who do the most bad things, mm-hmm. I have to remind myself that we're all the heroes of our own stories. Mm-hmm. And so the reasons that they do what they do aren't necessarily good or bad in their eyes. Yes. They're just necessary. Mm-hmm. And, um, and maybe they do see, you know, recognize the immorality or whatever in, in their actions. But for the most part, I need to be able to get into their heads and understand the why, that core, that core belief in them that drives their narrative. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't understand their you know, motivation, then it's very hard to write them as three-dimensional characters. And this book actually started as a third-person, three-point-of-view um, narrative. And, okay. you know, it, it evolved mm-hmm. in, in the subsequent drafts. Mm-hmm. And I think actually getting into the heads of, of the characters who are present in that opening scene and doing points of view for them as well as for Cassie before I turned it into, you know, her story, Mm -hmm. it really did help me understand why they were doing what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really recommend drawing out two-thirds of your book to get there, (laughs) which is what I had to do. Wow. But ultimately, it did allow me to get into their heads and understand what they were doing when they were off page. Mm -hmm. And so that did influence a lot of, you know, the, the actions that they took and my understanding of who they were as characters. Yes. And you say it evolved uh, from the initial st- stages of, um, you know, three-point uh, perspective and it evolved into a sort of a singular perspective. Why did you actually make that choice? Was it just at the point where you felt that it was the right and necessary choice to make? I mean, given the fact that you've already, as you said, uh, you know, you've um, had all of this time and, and you've inputted all of this time and effort into creating that initial draft and then to sort of start from scratch, not necessarily from ground zero, but there's a lot of ground you need to make up. So how did you actually come to that decision? Was that something that you came up with or was it a discussion with your editor? And, and how did that process evolve? I gave I, I gave an early draft, the first draft of, of No Bad Deed to a friend of mine, and also I gave the first 50 pages of it to uh, a developmental editor. Mm-hmm. And some of the comments that, that they had weren't directly related to the third person versus first person narrative choice, but at mm-hmm. the same time, it was kind of pointing me in the direction that Cassie wasn't as fleshed out as the other two characters. And it was ultimately her story. Yes. And I was letting the other two characters tell the interesting parts of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was so concerned about keeping Cassie in the dark and, you know, revealing things from the other two points of mm-hmm. view that her story was more reaction than action Mm -hmm. and I did not see that in her character her character in my mind was much more proactive much Mm -hmm. more kind of getting things done yes so I uh, had to ultimately make that choice Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure if it was the right one to be honest because after that point no one else read my book oh wow okay chapters of it Mm -hmm. so I wrote very much in a vacuum Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't even sure if I had made the right choice, mm-hmm. but it felt right to me at the mm-hmm. time to focus on her telling her own story. Mm-hmm. And that's something very interesting, too, because obviously when you are creating a piece of work, you're sort of hemmed in in terms of what your vision for that work is. So it's interesting for me to hear that you created uh, your your work sort of in a vacuum and you didn't receive that feedback. Uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering how important was that for you and with your subsequent books, are you going to take a similar approach in terms of, you know, sort of following your intuition and then kind of sequestering yourself and then finishing the novel based on what you feel is best for the character or the characters in your book? 
I have I've one one difference in writing book two, uh, which is currently with my editor now, mm-hmm. is that I do have a community now, so I don't have that bubble. Okay, you know, good. I'm not just sitting in front of my computer screen. <laughs> um, ultimately, the hard thing is to adjust to the other voices, external voices and expectations. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely more more and less challenging, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's so rewarding to be able to get people, you know, their takes on, you know, early chapters of, mm-hmm. you know, book two, which is due out next year. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, I'm not, since I've never been, you know, part of a critique group before writing community as actively as I am now, mm-hmm. it's also hard to look at you know the subjectivity of it, yes, and separate separate that not everything is gospel, not everything is it's an opinion, mm-hmm. and so taking yep. that into account and making decisions based on uh, you still have to have a strong internal gut because it's your it's you know it's your story mm-hmm. and you need to make sure you're telling it the way you want to tell it as opposed to how you think others want you to tell it. And mm-hmm. so that's been a learning process, too. I've welcomed the feedback, but at the same time, it's been trying to find a way to keep my voice alive in, you know, in the fiction that I'm writing. And um, one thing I will say is that is one part that really surprised me about working with an editor mm-hmm. you know, at a publishing house as opposed to Work, you know, working on my own is I. I fully thought it would be more. Um, this is how you do it, and this is you know what you need to do here. And you know, I envisioned manuscript, my manuscript, you know, a, a wash and red line edits, and you know, <laughs> uh, and it wasn't that way at all. It was very mm-hmm. collaborative and mm, more conversational and discussion based as opposed to you need to do this this way and mm-hmm. that was so refreshing and it also puts the onus back on me finding solutions if there are issues in the manuscript um, you know it's it's been a it's been a, a learning curve but mm-hmm. it's been a fantastic one yeah, no, that's that's amazing because you do hear all these different stories from different authors. And so I, I believe maybe it's just indicative of the type of experience that you have because, you know, there are some authors that will say that I did receive my my first draft back from my editor and it was just a sea of red. I, I couldn't believe it. So it's, it's good to hear that it was more conversational for you. So I'm wondering, though, when you actually come up and you're talking to your editor about a, a particular point or a particular scene, uh, when you say that it's more conversational, is the editor then trying to excavate in terms of the reasoning behind certain choices? Or are they just saying, for example, you know, based on everything they read and the uh, exp- impression I have of this particular character, I believe that they would do this in this particular situation. So h- how were those discussions approached when there was uh, maybe like a contented uh, or an issue that was in contention where you felt that, you know, you should go a certain way, where your editor felt that the story is better served if things went another way? Well, you know, it's it's funny because there was only one point mm-hmm. in my manuscript, in the editing process of No Bad Deed, that I pushed back a little bit on mm-hmm. and that... You know, it was funny, though, because I was telling my husband the story. I said, well, we disagreed for the first time today. And, <laughs> and I reached out to how the conversation went. Oh, really? What does that look like? He asked. I was like, well, you know, I said, oh, well, can I try it this way instead? And he said, okay, that's how it is. <laughs> and that was the extent of it. It was not a... And then I will admit, ultimately, after sitting on it a couple of days, I realized he was right. He was right. Okay. Um, and so I ended up making the suggestion after I thought about it because mm-hmm. of course you know ultimately it isn't my name there on the, on the cover and That's right. I want to make sure that I'm true I true to my art I know it sounds a little pretentious but <laughs> you know I'm my voice I want my voice to be heard yes and, uh, so but no it was very it was not really on a granular level such as um, like this reads a little long mm-hmm. um, you know this this section could be tightened advice like that suggestions like that and I will say that 
you know, that was one of the things I also loved about my agent. And, mm-hmm. and you know, in our first edit that we did as well, and one of the reasons that, you know, I chose to work with him is because he just got my book and he just, everything that he said about my book that was wrong with it, yeah. I agreed with. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Sometimes you're too close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't see, you know, the the forest for the trees. You yes. can, you're so close to it. You're very close, and yep. so I really do respect the opinions of both my agent and my editor and uh, they've they've been so instrumental in helping me see where what needs to be fixed or mm-hmm. polished or tightened or whatever yes. and then leaving it to me to figure out how to accomplish that and so yeah it's, it's been very collaborative on both ends oh that's amazing and just speaking of that I'm just wondering how you draft your narratives uh, whether the first draft is something that you just kind of let the you know, the full throttle go where you're just going as quickly as you can and getting ideas and writing and writing and writing. Or if you take a more regimented approach in terms of, okay, I'm going to open like this and then you break it down into scenes, into chapters and things of that nature. So how, how do you approach that initial stage of getting things down on the page? Well, it's interesting because it's definitely evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I attempted to... to Query no bad deed. I'd written three and a half practice novels, oh, okay. and those those I started out the first one. I started writing in my twenties, mm-hmm. and it was called okay. I'm gonna admit this. Show my <laughs> my thinking back then. I thought dead weight. There's a person at my at my work who's not pulling her weight. She's gonna get bludgeoned with weight. Isn't that clever? <laughs> and yeah. can't imagine why that didn't end up working. Mm. But um, you know, so I just started writing. Just thought, oh, here's an idea. I'm going to start writing. And I didn't really think through the characters or whose story it was to tell or any of the the things that are so instrumental now to my writing process. Yes. Um, you know, and but then as I became more and more you know, practiced as a writer, I realized that I really do benefit from outlines and not everyone is like me. Some people mm-hmm. just like the joy of discovery and all that. But I find that the that actually the more detailed my outline is as far as the actions and motivations in the scenes, mm-hmm. that the more freeing it is. It has the actual opposite of effect of what some people say I like to do, you know, restrict them. But for me, it allows me to find the joy in those other, you know, little details. And and not that I'm not surprised still. Um, Like, for instance, the character of Daryl in No Bad Deed was Mm -hmm. supposed to be in one scene. And I liked him. Yes. He's got, he can't be just in this one scene. And so I, um, he was in more than that. And so... You know, I still allow myself the joy of discovery and, and finding new things to explore in my work. But at the same time, with my book, too, I actually even broke out the colored index cards on the corkboard. Interesting. Okay. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk to, you know, different creatives, uh, you know, authors and, uh, and other people in creative fields, because... You know, I'm just fascinated about process and how that kind of process evolves over time. So it's interesting now that you're you're using um, the the colored cue cards to uh, to kind of you know map things out. But I do believe that you know writing in that particular genre, so thrillers and mysteries and things like that, I believe that the story does benefit from actually having a plotting author because, you know, it's one of those genres that's really unforgiving in terms of not being able to tie loose ends, you know, with, when the pacing is off, the characters seem off. So it, it's good, you know, in my opinion, that authors are very cognizant of where the story is actually going, whereas in other genres are a lot more forgiving in terms of being able to just open up your imagination and just kind of let let it go where it, where it takes you. So how aware were you or how how did you approach the pacing of your novel? Because it's it's really, really well paced. So I'm just wondering, you know, how much effort did you put into mapping that out and then making sure you're hitting all the right notes at, at the particular times that you need to hit them? I'm not too, I'm not too 
analytical about the pacing of it mm-hmm. in that I, you know, but I do tend to have, you know, points I need to hit yes. in my own head, not, mm-hmm. you know, not in anyone else's. Yeah. Um, and I just find myself, like, when I start to get bored with the narrative, I'm like, okay, we need to, we need to quicken this up. Okay. And so generally I find, I, I, the first draft I tend to write to put down the skeleton of the book to make sure that I'm assigning, you know, an interesting motivation that I under start to understand my characters. Mm-hmm. Though I don't, I don't really get them until the end, and so there's a lot of character work that goes in and draft to uh, setting, layering, emotional thoughts, and those kind of things go in to the second draft. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the pacing is actually second or third draft for me. Interesting. Because, okay. you know, I look at it at a more granular, granular level with the sentences, you know, because mm-hmm. there are certain things like dialogue tags that, that slow. Yes. Um, the narrative or, or big chunks of exposition or backstory that slow the narrative. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you want that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need the reader to be able to take a breath. Yes. And so I become more aware of the structuring of the sentences and the paragraphs and like, okay, this one, um, like that is one of the biggest changes I made to No Bad Deed is the climax originally was much longer. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up cutting about 25% of it. And that okay. was something that tightened it. I looked for ways. And I didn't cut scenes so much as I just thought, okay, this is going on too long. We need to figure out how we can tighten. And it's amazing when you just take out, you know, paragraphs or like redundant thoughts mm-hmm. or, or stuff like that, that it does tend to cut almost organically I've cut that 25% you know I didn't have to like slice off you know big chunks of scenes I, I just found little ways to tighten it that way and I think the story became stronger for it mm-hmm. and it's good that you actually did that because the reader actually you know benefits because we are also reading your novel and the same parts that you feel that it's probably dragging is we would feel that it would be dragging as well. So it's good that you were able to do that. Uh, whereas a lot of authors, I feel they get really attached to their work and it's very difficult for them actually to, you know, to cut scenes or to cut important characters out of their work. Um, so I'm just wondering, just in terms of your ability to develop your story, um, did you at any point step away from it and then come back just with fresh eyes or did you just you know give it to your editor and readers in order to kind of separate yourself from that process because earlier you were saying that you know sometimes you're very close to what you're creating and I'm just wondering how you create that space to reinstill that uh, objectivity to your work I actually have a very difficult time mm-hmm. sharing sharing rough Sharing, oh, rough drafts, yeah. Sharing it. And my idea of rough is probably not somebody else's idea of rough. <laughs> yeah. Because I'll think, oh, this is just, this is rough, but I've already been through it a couple times mm-hmm. and, and thought of word choice and thought of those things. But I think a lot of that comes from me um, previously working as a, as a copy editor and editor that I am able to see what is benefiting the story mm-hmm. and what isn't. So that's just a learned thing from working how I worked, you know, under deadline and with uh, just get to the point, Heather. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so it did, you know, that that kind of was something that became ingrained in me over the years just by habit and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, but, but I have a hard time giving giving pages that are too rough to anybody mm-hmm. because then I fear that they're looking at the typos or the poor word choice mm-hmm. or, you know, these the slow bits that that they won't be able to see the greater structural big picture issues that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I try to give it to them as clean as possible so that they can see, you know, it's kind of like going into a messy house. If, 
you know, <laughs> dishes in the sink, and, you know, <laughs> and say, you know, clothes all over the floor and yeah. stuff, you're not going to be able to see that, oh, yeah, maybe the baseboards are, you know, need to be dusted. You're not going to be able to see the detail. Mm. And so I try to take those messy parts out okay. um, before giving it before giving it to anybody else okay interesting okay so one of the things that actually was fascinating about your book is the the choice that Cassie actually has toward you know in the beginning of the book where you know she witnesses something very very brutal and she's on the phone with 911 and they obviously tell her do not step out of that car don't do it but she makes that choice she stumbles into this horrific scene and Carver Sweet, who is the individual per per perpetrating that particular crime and that brutal exchange, actually gives her a choice of leaving the scene. So I'm wondering, how did you come up with that particular choice? Because it's not something I've ever seen or I've, I've read before where the killer is actually somebody that's giving uh, someone uh, the opportunity to actually leave. So mm -hmm. how did that come about? Well, I do like that you that you mentioned the word stumbled onto the sink. She literally stumbled <laughs> yeah, into, the, <laughs> into the sink. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it goes back to that whole duality thing because I, I think in that moment his quarrel is not with Cassie. His yes. quarrel is with Brooklyn. Yeah. And he, you know, it goes back to the whole thing about bad guys don't necessarily see themselves as bad guys. Mm -hmm. And so he's still capable of having a somewhat of a moral code. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to show a little bit of that, that, that not only from his point of view that he's giving her an out, yes. but also from her point of view that she has this out and she's not taking it. So she's actually making a choice that isn't really even a choice for her at that mm -hmm. moment because she's naturally a caretaker mm -hmm. and she's a veterinarian yes. and she's trained to heal. And so she's not the kind of person who's going to let someone die, even if she herself is threatened. Mm -hmm. So that, that is enlightening for both her character as well as for Carver's because He's giving her an out, but at the same time, is it really? Is it really an out? <laughs> um, so I really wanted to explore that that from both of their perspectives. Yeah, I know. It's very, very interesting, just the juxtaposition between sort of like freedom and then being being tied to this situation that you, in any other, you'd want to leave, but then you can't because you're compelled because of your character to stay. And it's, you know, it's very, very gripping. So I'm wondering though. There also is a very complicated relationship between Cassie and her husband, Sam. And so uh, I'm wondering about, you know, developing that type of uh, situation, because obviously, you know, it's maybe something that you can't relate to on a personal level, but you're able to kind of create this dynamic that also unfolds very gradually in terms of what the reader discovers. So um, and. I'm wondering how that process actually came to be, whether it's always that you had in your mind that this is the kind of dynamic I want them to have, or whether throughout the drafting process you thought, okay, now what I'll do is I can infuse a relationship sort of with this tension that, uh, that'll kind of draw the reader in and will inspire the reader actually to go on to see how things turn out for them. I think that was actually one of my most challenging aspects of, of early drafts was mm -hmm. finding the, the, their relationship and the tone of it. Yes. Because, because you know, he was, it's not much of a spoiler, it, you know, plug your ears if you don't want to hear it, but it happens very early and it's on the jacket, so he disappears. <laughs> and so to establish, to establish that this is, you know, somebody, th th this is their relationship, and there's so much that happens and develops and that she learns yes. in the process of looking for answers. Mm -hmm. And so to develop a relationship that's on the page very briefly and then carry it through throughout the book when, you know, her husband has gone missing was a challenge because mm -hmm. there are no POV chapters from his point of view. You don't get into his head. Mm -hmm. And so the onus is on Cassie exclusively to define the relationship and show 
and show the cracks and the fissures, even though they are not apparent to her. Mm-hmm. So um, it was tricky. It was a tricky one. <laughs> it definitely was. But I, I just really got to know them both in that first messy draft. Mm-hmm. And so on the second draft, I was able to go in and kind of layer in a little bit more of the, of the marital question marks. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, marital question marks. And the thing, too, is that, you know, Kathy, Kathy, Cassie is also extremely resourceful in in this novel. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the times what you'll do is you'll read a novel where the protagonist is, is extremely, like, intelligent and they're very uh, observant and they all you know they get all these minute details and they put them together whereas Cassie she's a you know regular person and I was following the book and everything that she did in the book is something that I would do just in terms of piecing you know different things together and trying to make sense of this very interesting situation that you have you you know you're experiencing so I'm just wondering how important was for was it for you in drafting your novel and creating this character for her to be really relatable to the reader uh whereas you know if you're reading something like a Sherlock Holmes mystery or something like that you know the some of the observances that they make actually I think distance the reader because then you're putting the character on a pedestal. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, you can figure it out and, you know, you can take this grain of dust and then discover that it came from the the Sahara and trace that back to whatever. But Cassie is very, she's diligent in terms of what she's doing and picking up clues, but it's not distancing to the reader where you feel like there's no way I can relate to this particular person. So I'm just wondering how important was it for you to create that dynamic not only with the story, but also to develop that relationship with the reader? I think it's very important. I, it was important to me that she be able to be somewhat aspirational as far as we, we want to be able to save our families and mm-hmm. we want to think that we will be calm under pressure. At the same time, it was equally important for me for her to be flawed. I mean, mm-hmm. she makes she makes some questionable choices, like getting out of that car. I don't know that I would have, but she's not me. Yes. Um, I wish I wish I were as tough as Kathy, but she's definitely you know definitely got that on me for sure. But it was also important for me to show that she is a normal person. She's she's a she's a mom. She's a dist- sometimes distracted. She sometimes feels guilty for working long hours and she's just trying to do you know do the best by her family that she can mm-hmm. and so when she has this situation and Sam does go missing he's kind of been a, a bit of the primary caretaker in a lot of ways and so she has to adapt to the situation while also protecting her family and the other thing is is that she has had long repressed anger issues Mm -hmm. and so it was important for me for her to start to realize that it's not always you can't always I don't want to say can't always take the high road but that she she goes from from really relying on her mental resources to realizing hey I may have to be more proactive about this and and so that evolution of her thinking was also very important to me Mm mm-hmm and when I was reading to it, there's also a very interesting relationship between her and the detective in this book, Detective Rico. Uh, and I, there was sort of this tension where, you know, there's a trust aspect to the relationship, but there's also an apprehension that, you know, creates this oscillation between like trust and distrust. And so how did that relationship evolve throughout the drafts? You know, it's funny because remember earlier I was talking about how um, how my agent and editor have been so collaborative. Yes. That was actually the big thing that my, the only really big thing that my agent suggested in an early draft was when I gave him, you know, my manuscript, he said, hey, I think this relationship should be more collaborative hmm. between Rico and Cassie. And when he said that, a light bulb went off, and I was like, yeah, it does need to be more collaborative. (laughs) 
And so I actually, before, like I said, I wrote in a bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really try to actively do anything with my three and a half practice books. And so Mm -hmm. I wasn't really convinced that this was ever going to see the light of day. So I realized, realized, hey, I really need to make this more collaborative. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to, through through my old connections, you know, journalism connections, Mm -hmm. to a retired police lieutenant where where I live. And so he was so incredibly generous with his time. Mm -hmm. And we actually, we actually talked through all those scenes that Rico is in. Like, would you say this? Would you do this? What do you think about this? And he, mm-hmm. like I said, he was so generous with his time. And, you know, I really thank my stars every day that I have the agent I do who made that <laughs> suggestion because I think it works so much better. In the, in the early drafts, it was more, more um, the more apprehension angle. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, Rico does want the same thing that she does, which is to find her husband and to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. And so he wants the same things, but he's looking at it in an entirely different way. And so there has to be somewhat of a common ground. And, but at the same time, there's the suspicion, you know, she wants to do things for herself. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, there is that, that two sides of the coin. And in the first, in the first version, it was definitely more apprehension and less collaboration. And I think the book definitely got, stronger because of my conversations with, you know, the law enforcement official as well as my agent's, you know, very wise advice. <laughs> and you follow it, which is, which is fantastic. I'm wondering, though, what is, what is a compliment? What is one of the best compliments that you've received from, from a reader as far as your book is concerned? You know, this is going to sound weird because okay. I, I don't, I, I don't really read my reviews as much anymore unless somebody tags me because it's. It, I feel like it's more about their experience and mm-hmm. not necessarily my ego. I, you know, so I try to, yes. you know, distance myself, especially because not everyone is universally going to love every book. It's That's just, true. It's just the way it is. Um, though it has been mostly positively reviewed. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not, but at the same time, I think the thing that actually has been the, the most gratifying for me mm-hmm. is like the two star reviews mm-hmm. that talk about like things that happen late in the book because everyone's finishing it. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. Okay, two star reviews, but you still finished the book. Interesting. Okay. So I, but I did have I did have somebody who said that they nearly fell off their treadmill. Oh wow, that's um, good. Or or staying up late and having to drink too much coffee the next morning. Those are the kind of things. um, It was actually funny because I uh, remember reading like, gosh, it was well before I got published. Someone. online mentioned, you know, hey, what is your brand? What is the one thing that you want someone to say about your book? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's going to be different for every author. That's right. And for me, it's like, I want people to say that they stayed up late finishing it. Mm. And so those are the comments that really um, stick with me is like, yeah, I wasn't bored. I, I wanted to finish. And so, <laughs> you know. Even those two stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so as the scenes are developing, and as you are creating the novel and you're creating the narrative in those initial stages, when it comes to those scenes, do you see the scenes in your head or do you hear them when you're putting them together? Or is it both? It, it is both, but it's mainly, I'm, I'm a very visual mm-hmm writer as far as I see I wish I could tap like into that part of my brain that is visualizing the scene and just have it translate onto this you know onto my work in progress yes. because I can visualize every single scene as if it's a movie yes. um, and so that's the thing is I, I want to say maybe I think cinematically mm-hmm. like I'm feeling the emotions too but I'm also just feeling like the dread and the and seeing you know what it's like the the temperature and the weather and the mm-hmm. the 
the way the leaves are blowing on the trees, and I, you know, it just it does all it does all solidify my head fairly quickly when I'm writing, mm-hmm. and that that is actually one of my greatest challenges is is making sure that my image in my head matches mm-hmm. what's on the page. Uh, but I do think very cinematically. I would love to see No Bad Deed as like a movie <laughs> because it wow. does. You know that 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 would be exciting for me. But ultimately, it's about what's on the page. You know, I, I said wow earlier because I'm literally looking at my next question, and this is what it is: the book that you wrote could actually be a Netflix special if they approached you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so uncanny, but really, this is interesting. So, if they approached you to do this, would you would you want a first crack in terms of writing the screenplay, or how, how much control would you want over the final product, or how much input would you want to have as they were putting to get putting it together? You know, when I was first, like, writing, I I wrote some creepy novellas when I was a teenager. But one other thing that I tried to write was a screenplay. I Mm, remember buying buying the... the screenplay for for Pulp Fiction and oh, studying okay. it, yeah, and just the it's just such an art to write a good screenplay. It's amazing, to, to, yeah. To, to distill a story and to have it be so layered and mm-hmm. and deep and intense and short, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's not much going on on the actual page, and so I would say that screenplays, you know screenwriting is an art mm-hmm. and it's not one I've practiced. Okay. So I would leave it to the experts. I would, you know, I, ultimately um, there, are, there are people with much better craft than, than I would have considering I haven't tried to write a screenplay since I was like 14 or 15. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, whenever, whenever Pulp Fiction came out, let's go back. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was, it's so, so I would not need to be involved in that process other than say, you go get him. Cheer <laughs> <laughs> him <Yeah>. on. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. So there's another quote that I came across that I found very interesting is by uh, Da Vinci. And basically he said that art is never finished. It is only abandoned. And I wonder how does this particular quote apply to your work uh, as it stands right now, whether it's, you know, this novel they just completed or or the novels to come? I think it's a very apt quote because (laughs) when I look at No Bad Deed even, and I poured a lot of my blood, sweat, tears Mm -hmm. into that, um, and at the same time, you know, I, I, I can't open it now because I think, gosh, what if I had done this instead? And and I think of new ways to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it would be making it better. It probably would just be making it different. Yes. So so I totally agree with that. It's it's something that you have to let go and you have to just accept and take the risk and be brave enough to say, I think this is done. And let me see what others think, because it does feel like it's never done. Yes, you know? that's the thing about it. It really does. Mm-hmm. But even if you outline, even if you plan, even if you do seven revisions, it's still, there are still always going to be things that you think, gosh, what if I'd done this instead? And yes. so it could be, you could work on the same book. <laughs> For, for a, a long time. Yeah. And I'm also yeah. wondering, too, just in terms of the legacy of your characters, um, what type of legacy would you want them to have? Or what, what type of, I guess, not impression, but if you, for example, were sitting down with them and you were talking to them, obviously, you know, the characters, they're all you. But I'm just wondering, what is something that you would like to have them say to you in terms of how they developed or or how they wish to grow? I think having a better understanding of self. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we take years to develop ourselves. Um, And maybe maybe that's an unfinished work too. And that Mm -hmm. just keeps developing over a lifetime as well. So having a better understanding of self, which I believe Cassie does develop over the course of the book, um, having a sense of what's really important to them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
understanding weaknesses yes. and understanding that weaknesses can also be strengths. Mm-hmm. I mean, your your greatest strengths can also be your greatest weakness. And they're two sides, like I said, of the same coin. And yes, I realize that now use that cliche twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do prune them from my manuscripts. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, like somebody who is really empathetic might also yeah. be very moody. Mm-hmm. And just recognizing that what makes us the people we are is what makes us unique and also our flaws are, are part of that. And so mm-hmm. having that sense of self, I think, if, if they can all develop that and understand what makes them who they are mm-hmm. um, for good and for bad, you know, got to recognize your bad your bad deeds too, um, <laughs> then that they would be, that would, that would be gratifying to hear it. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering also, in terms of your development as an author, you know, obviously you said that, you know, in the past you, you've you'd written three practice novels and and also a screenplay, which is interesting. I'm wondering what was really instrumental in your development as a as an author. I think pretty much the the experience of being a journalist and a copy editor is kind of what made me, you know, in living, to be honest, mm-hmm. just getting in, in the chair and just making making the choice to write um, because it's so easy not to mm-hmm. take your writing seriously mm-hmm. and to put it off in favor of the, you know, dishes in the sink or mm-hmm. the errands that need to be run or the day job or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that has evolved over the years. Okay. I'm wondering too because you said something interesting that you said that um, you know writing sitting down and writing is very very it's difficult and I've heard the same thing from a lot of other writers and creatives just actually sitting down and, and doing it so I'm wondering how regimented is your approach to the craft do you go into a certain room at a particular time every single day you know is there some certain things that you do in order to trigger your mind in ter- you know to write there's some people that I've spoken to, you know, they light a candle. Some people light in, slight incense. Some people close their blinds. So how regimented is your approach to writing to actually make sure you get into that chair and you finish what you need to do? Do you have a word count? Uh, things like that. I actually, um, there are only, I only have two hard and fast rules. And one of those is write as often as I can, as many days as I can, mm-hmm. and like on Friday, I wrote 96 words, and okay. that's all I got, Okay. Um, but then other days, I write like 1,500, you know, so it really depends on the day, and I try not to be too hard on myself about that, mm-hmm. but for me, if I write every day, it keeps the story in my head so that part is very regimented I if I if I take more than two days off I I feel like I lose a bit of the story Mm -hmm. so um, you know and then the other thing is the outline the outline is really important to me because while now I have a dedicated office that I do you know I'm able to shut the door Mm -hmm. Um, you know I, I tell people you know my kids didn't respect a bathroom door when I was <laughs> when they were they were small. There's no way they were going to respect an office door. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now I have that, and the kids are older. Yes. But at the same time, I've grown accustomed to writing on my phone in my car mm-hmm. on my lunch hour, or yes. or you know, finding those moments. And that is the part that is makes an outline so freeing for my process is that I'm able to take those stolen moments, whether it's 15 minutes or three or four hours, whatever Mm -hmm. time I have, and just get to the point, just start writing and know what I'm going to start writing. Mm -hmm. The other day, I wrote, uh, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm trying to keep my streak alive, and I hadn't written anything that day, and I was getting in bed, and I had my phone with me, Mm -hmm. and I wrote like 350 words and like, half an hour on Mm. my phone Mm -hmm. in bed before I went to bed. Mm -hmm. And um, that I I take those moments where I can get them because Mm -hmm. usually I don't even write that fast. So 
it's just trying to keep it alive is part of my process. But I'm I'm not an early riser. Mm-hmm. I, I do rise early, but I hate it. So, <laughs> um, and I also have the day job, so mm-hmm. I you know I try to write when I can when I'm feeling you know you know inspired. But oh, I yeah. also make myself sit, even if I'm only going to write ninety six words. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make myself write those 96 words, even if it takes two hours, because <laughs> I think discipline is also important. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's interesting. You said that, you know, you sit down and you you sit, you write when you're inspired. And, and it just kind of reminded me of another quote by Picasso. Where basically, he was saying that, you know, inspiration finds you working. And so it, it sounds to me that it that quote also applies to your process because you're, you're finding those moments, whether, you know, it's in bed or, or you're, you're waiting for something, you're finding those moments actually to put in that work and that effort in order to take that step forward in terms of developing your, your narrative. Um, but I'm wondering, as you're writing, though, with, you know, 300 words, 96 words, how harshly are you judging yourself or are you able to turn that editor part of your, your mind off as you're, you're writing your first drafts? Well, I judge myself very harshly for zero word days. <laughs> I admit that. Um, I, I'm, I'm proud of those 96 word days, yeah. but it does, like one, one recent day, I actually spent about five hours writing, oh, wow, nice. and I was so proud of myself, and I netted 157 words mm-hmm. because... I was editing as I went, and mm-hmm. I was going back and cutting and yeah. adding and changing. And I do do some of that in the first draft. I, like I said, I'm I'm not comfortable sharing rough rough drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to be clean. I, I want you to be able to focus on the structural issues mm-hmm. so those can get fixed because yes. those are the biggies. Yes. Um, so I do I I do edit as I go, but I try to stop myself. I limit myself to while I'm in front of the computer, I edit as mm-hmm. I go and mm-hmm. I can I could tweak that same sentence three or four times, it's fine with me. But the next day, nope. I'm those are for later drafts. So I try not to revisit my old work because I used to mm-hmm. go back and re- revise that chapter before before I started writing every mm-hmm. day. And that just made it so that I just was always revising that chapter and, and yes. not writing anything new. And I never... They never progress for it. I've heard the same thing too, where where some writers will actually get into that cycle of they write and then they go back and they revise what they've written the, the previous day and <laughs> they don't move move forward. Uh, and just on that note, I'm wondering how uh, how are you able to, or are you able to, or to what extent are you able to separate yourself from your work in, in terms of you know when you reach that word counter, you reach the point where you think, okay. I've I've put in the time. This is fantastic. Or is the story always constantly on your mind? Maybe on a very, um, not a conscious level, but you're always sort of thinking about characters, conflict, arc, pacing, all that stuff. Or are you someone that's able to actually step away, completely divorce yourself, sequester yourself from anything that you're working on, and then revisit it 100% when you come back to it the next day? You know, the only way I can get my mind off writing a book that I finished is to write something new. Yes. Um, so I can fall in love with something new. <laughs> that being said, it um, presents its own set of challenges trying to edit one book while writing another, that mm-hmm. which I'm currently, currently doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am able to distance myself somewhat as long as I'm writing every day most of the time if I take a day off because you know it's just been a a busy day it's just a hard day you know I I give myself that permission to do that Mm -hmm. as long as I'm right as long as I'm making a conscious effort to try to write every day because like you mentioned it, it stays in your head I mean you can't you can't ever really turn it off if you're writing every day. Yes. And that's, that's a good thing until the book is finished. And then you do need to turn it off and you do need to <laughs> get some distance. Otherwise, you'll you know, always be revising that one part. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do try to distance myself 
when it's done. But when until it it's done, I'm thinking about it 24-7. <laughs> Dreaming about it. Yes. Wake up thinking about it. Yes. You know, luckily my husband is very used to me switching on the light, getting my phone and dictating a note <laughs> for the next day into my phone. Siri has been so helpful with that. Mm-hmm. Um, remind me tomorrow, Siri, about that. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, because I, I never want to lose a thought. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's constantly on my mind when I'm actually actively drafting. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. It's interesting because it reminded me of what you were saying right there of Daniel Day-Lewis and how he was talking about his inability to also sort of divorce himself from the characters that he plays. And it's actually a process for him to do that. And it just made me think about, you know, how closely and how inextricably linked that uh, the artist is to their work, especially if you're passionate about something and you love uh-huh. what you're doing. It's very difficult, especially if you put so much time and effort and, you know, planning and, as you said earlier, blood, sweat and tears into into a book and into the set of characters for you and then to release them into the world, uh, I think would be an interesting situation. So how, how does that feel for you when you actually reach the end and now this book is no longer yours, you're actually then sharing it with a much larger community. What is the sense that you have when it comes to the release dates um, and things of that nature? I, I actually really enjoy that part of it. Nice. Um, because by the end of the experience, I feel like well, I feel like if I'm if I'm ready to share it, if I'm ready to let it go into the larger world, then that means I'm satisfied with it. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, the, the first three practice books, I I think the first or was it the second one? I queried ten agents mm-hmm. and actually got some positive responses, but then realized Good. I didn't really love the book. Oh, and so yeah, I, that's a problem. I kind of. I just kind of stopped because it hadn't been revised. It had just basically been edited for typos and stuff. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. really structurally edit it, Put it together, because yeah. I didn't have a firm grasp on the story. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of what, if, I've, if I'm satisfied with it, that means it's ready to share because mm-hmm. I'm pretty hard on my own work. Yeah. So okay. I'm, yeah, it's a sense of, it's a sense of like, ah, I can exhale now. You can release, yeah. Okay, and as my last question, I'm wondering who inspires you, whether it's uh, an author or an artist, uh, choreographer? I, well, my first inspiration was Dean Kutzt because, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I read Whispers when I was 11 and I was just transfixed mm-hmm. and I thought, this is what I want to do. Mm. You know, this, I, I want to write books like this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, totally different genre. Not actually, I, no, there's no. overlap. Yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he's definitely been an inspiration. Um, Harlan Coben and Lisa Gardner, I, when I was talking oh, yeah. to my agent early on, yeah. I mentioned, hey, yeah, you know, if, if they had a book baby, I would want to write that book. I mean, because they both take the take the every every man, every woman, every person character, and kind of push them to their limits and and show them in unusual, extraordinary situations. And I love that. So those mm-hmm. people inspire me as far as, far as artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I get a lot of inspiration from my children. Oh, nice! And especially. Like, my daughter's 19, mm-hmm. and when I was writing Cassie, I really did think, you know, this, I, I want to make sure that I'm creating this flawed, human, strong woman that is going to be somebody my daughter can say, hey, yeah, my mom wrote that. And mm-hmm. they they inspire me, and, and also that you know, they both are, you know, dream big and they they go for what they want. They're very socially conscious mm-hmm. and very, um, you know, very compassionate, empathetic oh, nice. people. And like my my son, when he when he is voting, they, 
was wrong a couple elections ago when he could first vote. He actually drove two hours out of his way to vote because they had him at the wrong precinct or whatever. Oh, wow. And so yeah. he made that effort mm-hmm. as a young man to be civically engaged. And mm. so I find a lot of inspiration from them and their friends. Wow. And, you know, just that level of, of social engagement that they have is, mm-hmm. is inspiring because... I tell them I only have the one regret, and that is that I didn't try sooner. And they are trying sooner, mm-hmm. and I love that. Like, my daughter's a musician, and I love that oh, she's that's trying amazing. sooner. Yeah. You know, and that she has faith in herself. So mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, they inspire me to make art. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. That's a fantastic way to conclude this conversation. So, Heather, thank you so much for making the time. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having me again. Okay, now. Bye-bye. Bye. We would love to thank our guest, Heather Chavez, for coming on the show. You can find out about her at heatherchavez.com, H-E-A-T-H-E-R-C, H-A-V-E-Z.com and don't forget to also rate us as well as send us feedback. If there are any other guests that you would like for us to reach out to, we're more than happy to do that. But the rating is actually supremely important because it uh, provides us with an opportunity to attract more guests to the show. So thank you so much for listening and remember these are our stories.